All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 12, please. Luke chapter 12, we're going to look in that verse 1 through 12. And the message is entitled, The Sin of Hypocrisy. Jesus has just been dining with a group of Pharisees and scribes, as you know, in the house of a certain Pharisee. And Jesus there exposed their false righteousness, declaring that they were like defiling tombs and pronouncing judgments over them. Jesus also pronounced judgment over the lawyers for their abusive burdens over the people and their interpretation of the law. And being complicit to the murder of their fathers by building the tombs of the prophets. The end result was that Jesus was attacked with great hostility and attempt to trap him in order to accuse him. Jesus now left this hostile environment and is before the crowds and his disciples. And he continues to proclaim the present kingdom of salvation and the second coming for judgment. You can trace this from chapter 11, verse 14. It goes all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. So Luke, this entire section, um, is, in, is not in chronological order as the middle portion of his gospel is in. And these things, you can find them in the other synoptics, but he just puts them in. They're not following order. But he, he categorized them in themes. So it's easy to lose connection if you don't realize that, that he put in themes together. Um, and here the unifying theme is being light to the world and waiting and watching, being ready for a second coming that's going to come back in judgment. And you'll see this weaved throughout. So if we keep that as a context, then we'll understand where he's coming from. And so what I want to do is look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 12 here. Um, as Jesus warns against hypocrisy and he gives us three reasons for it. Let me read here. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have spoken in the ear in inner room will be proclaimed on the housetop. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and of after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is uh, forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I say to you, whoever confesses me before man, him, the Son of Man, will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should 
answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so, the warning of Jesus against hypocrisy is followed by three reasons. First, God knows everything. Verse 1 through 3. Secondly, God is to be feared above everyone. Verse 4 through 7. And third, God is able to save anyone. Verse 8 through 12. In both three connections, there's hypocrisy. It's easy to lose. Let's begin here with the first reason. God knows everything. Verse 1 through 3. Notice verse 1. The location was out of now in the open land. He's left the house. The occasion having left the house there with a certain Pharisee. The word says, in the meantime. Here, we don't know what length of time has transpired. Um, but here is a transition implying the connection with what has just preceded. The situation was precarious, to say the least. There were crowds all about Jesus. It's described for us when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together. This was a sort of mob mentality, um, uh, stepping on one another, trampling on one another. Now, we are very familiar with this, not alone just when there's violence or some kind of riots and that, but in a normal, what's supposed to be civil order. You know, Best Buy's is going to have a sale, and people spend the night to get first in. They open the doors. People just rush in. Do you think that they're saying, oh, yo, please, you first? No, they trample people, and people can't even die. This is the scene. The instructions were to those who had believed in him in faith, notice. Jesus addressed his followers. He began to say to his disciples, first of all. He certainly had first the twelve in mind. Verse 1 declares them. Verse 15, 22, 41, and 54. He had chosen them after an entire night in prayer, remember, in chapter 6, 12 through 16. He was going to entrust them the early development of the church from Pentecost on. But he also, without doubt, included the many disciples following him that we've seen up to this point. He's already sent out the 70, as we saw earlier. And there were many more in the multitudes that were his disciples because... The disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven? No, no, no. Either for us or against us. You know, if he can't do nothing good if he's against us. So there were many others. Now notice Jesus warned his disciples against the lifestyle of the Pharisees to impress or get things from men. This is the hypocrisy. The best illustration for hypocrisy is a weather vane. On one side, it's the truest instrument. It tells you which direction the wind's blowing. On the other side, it's a great illustration for people who are just into themselves. You've met them. You're talking to them. And you're talking about a certain subject or a certain thing, and they believe opposite to you. But you start sharing it, and they see where you're going, so they say, yeah, I agree with you. But they don't. They're weather vanes. They just turn. They're camellias. 
They don't have integrity. They don't have character. The word beware means to turn the mind or to give attention. Translate sometimes the old King James and even the new King James. Take heed. Luke 17, 3, 20, 46, and 21, 34. It's on the Sermon of the Mount. Take heed. Beware. The warning is an imperative command, by the way, a present active tense to avoid hypocrisy. And it's symbolized by leaven, a symbol of evil and sin. You ladies know what leaven does to bread. Just a little bit. Corrupts the whole bread. That's what sin does. He's focusing on the sin of hypocrisy. Literally, pay attention to yourselves, it says. The precaution is for their own lives. He's talking to the disciples regarding hypocrisy. Wearing of a mask to pass oneself off as something that you really are not. Like in the theater. The frown and the smile. In verse 2 and 3, we have the revelation. It was that there was nothing hidden from God. In verse 2, one day, all hypocrisy will be revealed at the judgment of God, Jesus says. All sin covered up will be uncovered, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. The word cover means to conceal entirely. This form of this word appears only this time, one time in the New Testament. Then the word revealed, apocalyptil, means to uncover, to lay open, or bear, or to unveil. It's the same word for the book of Revelation. Listen to Psalm 139.12. It says, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. You is capitalized, God. But the light shines as the day. The darkness as the night are both alike to you. God does not need night vision. He can see perfectly well in the dark. Everything. All secret sins will be disclosed, he says, nor hidden that will not be known. The word hidden means secret. Luke 8, 17, 11.33, it's used. And the word known simply means to come to know. To understand and perceive the information. Romans 2.16 says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's the white throne judgment. We'll be looking into that a little more. We the believers go through the beam of seat of Christ that we will suffer loss for reward. Those who go through the white throne judgment lose their life eternally. There's a contrast. One day... All words and deeds will also be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 3. The word, the words that are unknown. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in light. You see, the non-believer doesn't really believe this. The non-believer believes, ah, you know, I just live, I die, that's it. There's no God, there's no judgment. Come on, let's get serious. What a shocker when he stands before God. And those words that he spoke in secret, they brought to light. And that's the idea, the shock of it. Words whispered to few. 
And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed from the housetop. Whoa. <laughs> and God just blurts it out. What a shocker that all that you believed to be true was not true at all as a non-believer. Shock again is the focus. You remember when we were studying Kings, uh, the wife of um, Jeroboam arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. And uh, he was going blind, it says, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord has said to Ahijah, here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he was sick. Remember, she was going to find out if he was going to live or die. And thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. First Kings 14, 4 through 6. Here she went out of her way to disguise herself and all that. And I, he's blind. And before she even entered in, Hi, wife of Jeroboam. How you doing? God gave him a word of knowledge. The sin of hypocrisy is to cause a person to be disgusted and desire that the person be exposed. That's the natural response. We're creating the image and likeness of God. We are moral and we're ethical. Now, we are fallen and we corrupt it, but we do have that potential capacity. At one time, this was the um, moral and ethical response in America and the church. Now our nation has become an amoral society. You fill in the blank, it's subjective. There's no absolute right or wrong. Judgments cannot be made. And so our nation, as well as the church, has become very politically correct and subjective which brings utter destruction to a society as we're seeing. It disintegrates. It will come to a screeching halt. Because nobody can do anything, because no one can make a judgment on anything, and nobody can blame anybody for anything. So it just stops. Listen to James 3.17. He says, But the wisdom... That is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is the new potential we have in Christ. We still have a sin nature, so we have the potential for hypocrisy. So we must guard against it, and we fall prey to that. We must deal with it first with God and then with the person. Very, very clear. The destructiveness of words is well known by every one of us if we've lived long enough in the world. While pretending to be otherwise, backbiting, slandering, false accusations, rumors, anger, bitterness, revenge, whatever it may be. Let me give you some um, verses on this. Proverbs 29:11 says, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs ten nineteen. The words of talebearers are like tasty trifles. Ooh, we like them toasted, buttered. 
and they go down into the inmost body, Proverbs 18, 8. And somebody starts to give you one of these tasty trifles. You're to say, wait, 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 wait. Are you gossiping? Oh, no. What are you doing? Stop them. Dead in their tracks. But is my wife good? Do it. But is my husband good? Do it. You don't go along with it. Do you see a man hasting his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 29, 20. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. A terrifying verse. At the white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. But the things which were written, by the things that were written in the books. This is the non-believer's judgment, the white throne judgment. This is not the believer's judgment. Books. Everything, words, deeds, acts, everything. Anybody who thinks that they're not going to face God are going to be shocked. The believer, as you know, is a new creature. And therefore, he's to speak and to live differently into the glory of God. Proverbs 16.24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. I have to work at this. I have to pray the Lord put a door on my lips. Guard my heart. Doesn't come natural. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. Proverbs 18.4 A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Proverbs 25.11 Very valuable gold and silver. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Ephesians 5.12 This is one of the uh, chief characteristics of emerging church people and pastors. They share the word and their experience of life from the pulpit in great detail, especially their sexual conquest and everything, real vulgar. Almost boasting of the things they did. We're, we're not supposed to even mention those things any longer. What's up with that? Hmm. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one, Colossians 4, 6. Salt preserves, purifies. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment, Matthew twelve thirty six. God knows everything. Nothing escapes him. It may escape you. You may have forgotten about it. But not God. 
second reason he gives against hypocrisy is that God is to be feared above everyone, verse 4 through 7. In verse 4, the disciples were not to fear men and act like hypocrites and pretend to be faithful to Jesus, even under persecution. They're addressed with affection by Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Don't miss this. And I say to you. So these are the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples. He calls them friends. He also mentions that in John 15, 14, and 15. No more servants, but friends. They're not to fear what man can do in his tribunal judgments. For he can only affect man temporarily. Now, he doesn't say not to fear man. He says not to fear man what man can do to the body. Okay? That's different because often we hear God saying, stop being afraid because there's a lot of fearful things in this life. And fear is a good thing. It tells you to get out of there if you can. Okay? The ultimate thing man can do to him is to take his life. Listen to his words. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. This is the context. The word afraid um, means to be put to flight by being terrified. We get our word phobia from it. The body is um, temporal, as you know. And um, it's constantly decaying. And one day it will ultimately give up its life. When we're first young, it's a whole different thing. And as we get older, we kind of just don't see that much decay. But you get to a certain point where all of a sudden it just picks up speed. And then you're trying to do everything to slow it down, whichever way you can. And as people are dying, I'm moving up the line and nobody wants to butt in. (laughs) The ability of man to do anything else does not exist. That's the point. Listen. And after that, have no more that they can do. They just left the house of hostility. They're in the midst of this tumult of people trying to get to Jesus. He's headed for Jerusalem six months away to be crucified. He's preparing his disciples. The body is the tent, as you know. It's temporal, Second Corinthians 5.1. When you go camping, you put a tent up, no one thinks you're going to be there for the next decade. Maybe 10 days. If you're really hardcore, maybe 30 days. <laughs> the real us is spirit, regenerated by the new birth. And at death, my spirit, my soul, will be instantly present before the Lord, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 through 8. Instantly. Notice in verse 5, they were to fear their creator who can affect them eternally. So not the one that can affect the body temporarily, but the one who can affect it eternally. The authority again is the supreme authority, Jesus Christ. But I will show you whom you should fear. As you know, Jesus is God incarnate. And he will show you who you could fear. It's an imperative command, not a suggestion. 
Jesus as a man knew what it was to be afraid, as you know. But he did not fear man. But there were fearful times in the life of Jesus. The garden is one perfect example. As he's praying fervently. But he didn't fear man. Listen to um, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are. Yet without sin. So Jesus never asks you or myself to do anything that he has not done first. Then he enables us. The ability of God to do something after death does exist in contradiction to or contrary to man. He says, fear him who after he has killed his power to cast into hell. The ultimate authority of God is to sentence a person to Gehenna. The word hell is Gehenna. Or the lake of fire. The final abode of a person and every person who dies without accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, having repented and having a transformed life. The Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, some of you were there with us last May, um, south of Jerusalem, as you're sitting in Mount of Olives looking to the eastern gate, is to the left. And um, it was the trash dump of the city, a place where the burning. It was also a place of the worship of Molech in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 7.31, 1 Kings 11.7, and many other places where they worshipped and sacrificed their children in the arms of Molech, burning red. Jesus said that Gehenna <clears throat> was a place of utter darkness, that the fire is never quenched, the worm never dies, and a place of gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is what the dentists tell you not to do when you're sleeping, grinding and pressing down. What a vivid picture of the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Utter darkness, but there's fire. How can that be? Worm never dies, yet it's always burning. And the gnashing of the teeth is not the most comfortable thing to do. Constantly. Jesus made this point in Matthew 10, Matthew 13, 24, Luke 13, many times about that. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, if you count the times in the New Testament. Because hell's a real place. And he doesn't want anybody to go there. And that's why he came, to make provisions so that you might repent of your sins and you might call upon his name. Now, the confirmation to fear God follows, yes, I say to you, fear him. Once again, I. Jesus said Gehenna is a real place and warns mankind about being eternally separated from God. So... People say there's no such thing as hell. Uh, when I was in the world, the uh, group Blood, Sweat, and Tears used to have a song. I, I, there's no heaven. I pray there's no hell. Well, I'm here to tell them that there's both. 
And they know because they were raised in church. <laughs> um, people will explain it away. Oh, it's just a Christian myth. It's just to kind of just kind of mess you up in your fun in life. And, you know, no, it's more than that. It's real. It's truth. Jesus is the ultimate authority. If you say there's no hell and no Gehenna, then you're calling Jesus a liar. Plain and simple. Jesus is declaring it is a place of eternal torment. Now, Notice in verse 6 and 7, the disciples were to have assurance knowing that God is well aware of all a believer goes through on earth. In verse 6, Jesus illustrated the constant vigilance and care of God over the believer. And he's talking to his disciples. He pointed out how cheap sparrows were sold for. Here's the illustration. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, a sixteenth of a denarius? They were so abundant that they would sell two for one copper coin. So, for two copper coins, you get four, and they throw a fifth one in. <laughs> That's how cheap and abundant they are. Now, I remember in Mexico City, when I was growing when I was little, we go to the market, and, and whenever you buy in the market, you know, you, you're, you're making the deal with the guy, and then at the end, <clears throat> he throws in what they call a pilon. A little handful or an extra apple or something like that here to show his benevolence, his kindness. And, you know, so you come back to business. It's good business practices, okay? And they just, hey, take five of them. You buy, you buy them four, give you an extra one. That's what he's pointing out here. But they're cheap. They're abundant. So he points out that even though sparrows were in abundance and cheap, God was aware of each one of them. How much more them? Listen to the words. And not one of them is forgotten before God. God was their creator. God watches over his creation. Jesus makes a superior comparison of the believer to the sparrows now in verse 7. Jesus comforted them by telling them how, or telling them that God their creator knows the number of each person's hair strands on their head. The very hair of your heads are all numbered. Now, studying this, I read different commentaries I'm going to give you, but forget it. How many hair strands a brunette has, a redhead, a blonde, and you know, and I'm saying, well, how do they know? What do they count them one at a time? But whatever strands you have. Now, some of us have less than others. No, I'm not that problem, not that much. I'm getting less and less. But the point is that God knows the very number. In other words, nothing escapes them. The same kind of theme. See, sometimes we read like the Gospel of Luke and we say, well, what's the connection here? Follow it through. God knows everything. Jesus communicated their superior value to God. He gave them an imperative command here, not a suggestion. Do not fear, therefore. He gave them a superior position. You are of more value than many Sparrows. Not one for one, but many sparrows. Human life is superior to animal life. Don't send me a text or an email. We are idolaters when it comes to animals. We floss their teeth. We brush their teeth. We take them to the chiropractor. We buy them an insurance plan. Get a life. 
treat your animal good, feed them, bathe them, spend time with them, but he's an animal. End of subject. (laughs) If you've never read The Jesus Freak, devotional, volume one or two, either one, there's um, an account there of a young Russian soldier during the um, Soviet Union when he was a Christian and um, he was very vocal about his faith in that and uh, his superiors didn't like that and so they always made it difficult for him and um, he was called to recant he did not they put him out in freezing weather where he should have froze to death and he didn't they couldn't believe why and God by his own testimonials sent angels and ministered to him and tell him he's going to be okay but ultimately they ended up killing him in very gruesome ways but the commander was so impressed that he went to his parents and said I want you to know that your son died courageously as a Christian. This is just 40 years ago or so. Not the early church. This stuff still goes on, ladies and gentlemen, for Christians. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The greatest thing that you and I can ever do is to fear God. That will keep me from so much stupidity and so much hurt upon my life. The church throughout the centuries has suffered tremendously, except for America. The martyrs under Nero was a great number, as you know. Today with Internet, you can pull up and find out all kinds of numbers all over throughout history. But he would take Christians and um, um, stretch them at the rack and pour hot lead on their bellies, um, um, tie them to horses and tear them apart, um, uh, sew them in animal skins and give them to savage wild dogs, um, uh, pitch them in wax alive and then put them on on poles and light them to light up his garden and um, you name it. Martyrs in USSR, the Soviet Union of past, that suffer greatly for their Christian faith. The martyrs of Mao's China, the Cultural Revolution, they were the first to be put away. Books all done away. That Cultural Revolution is here in America on a different level now. Books are being rewritten, history. Everything. Christians now are being pointed out and limited and confined. The martyrs of Africa, Rwanda, was nothing but a complete, permissive massacre of Christians by the UN and the world. Clinton was president then. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. 
Those who are placed and allowed to be in that position, God says that he is sufficient for them in a way that you and I cannot understand because we usually worry about something before it happens and it will never happen. But God says, don't worry about those things. Don't try to figure them out. If I get you there, I'll meet you there. That's my faith in the Lord, that he will be sufficient. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep, kept my words, they will keep yours also. John fifteen eighteen through 20. So once again, Jesus is the forerunner. He's the point man. He's our first and primary example. The believer has a great hope after life, as you know. The minute you die, it's gain. Paul says that in Philippians 1.21. For me to live with Christ, die is gain. The minute you die, you're instantly present before the Lord. Your spirit and your soul are before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1-8, as we said. So one day you're going to hear soon. I used to hear Pastor Chuck say that. He says, one of these days you're going to hear, Pastor Chuck Smith died. And he said, don't believe that. I moved. And that's exactly what happens when the believer dies. We don't die, we move. Physically, this body ceases to exist. goes back to the ground. But my spirit and my soul are instantly present before the Lord. The hope of the believer is, I know so. Not I hope so. A confident hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John eleven twenty five. That's in connection to the raising of Lazarus. Speaking to his sister. The unbeliever who declares himself spiritual religious, and those are the labels today. They don't want to say they're Christian. They, oh, I'm spiritual. Yeah. Light or darkness. Which one? Because today you can't make a judgment. And darkness is embraced as much as light. It's subjective. They have no idea of Gehenna. They have no clue of eternity. Gehenna was made for... Satan and his angels, Matthew twenty five forty one says, not one human being. Yet multitudes will be in the lake of fire, Gehenna. All who reject Jesus Christ and die without being saved will stand before the white throne judgment in Acts 20 to give an account for their lives. And they will be sentenced to Gehenna the lake of fire. Now, as there is different degrees of rewards in heaven, because God is holy and just and good, there will be degrees of punishment, because God is holy, just, and good. And God certainly is not going to pass a verdict on a man who's just been a liar and a thief all his life to the same punishment that a murderer or a rapist. 
would be sentenced. Even you and I would have some discrepancy about that. Though we have seen in some of our judicial verdicts and Supreme Courts things that are outrageous today. Where a man would rape a 16-year-old and he would get 30 days of community service. Amazing. But the punishment will be according to the sins, deeds, and acts, and words, imperfect judgment. So there's no need for fear of being unjust. It's God who's judging it, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Hades and death will be cast into Gehenna also. This is the second death, the eternal death, Revelation 20, verse 14 tells us. God is to be feared above everyone, trusting him. So that's the second reason he warns against hypocrisy. Because we have a tendency to want to give a pretense while not being real. Third reason is 8 through 12. God is able to save anyone. Don't miss the connection. In verse 8 and 9, the response to the gospel is to be sincere and genuine by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not a hypocritical declaration, which would be ungenuine. The invitation of salvation is given by Jesus himself. Verse 8, don't miss it. The supreme authority, also I say to you. He didn't quote a rabbi. He was speaking in full authority for the Father as the God-man Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, the crowds in the background. The condition for salvation, listen to the words, whoever confesses me before men, the word whoever or whosoever indicates anyone. It is all inclusive. No one is denied salvation. He's already spoken in chapter 923 about picking up your, denying yourself, picking up your cross daily and following him. That's salvation. That's an answer to salvation, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The word confesses literally means to say the same thing as another. To agree with genuinely, not hypocritically, in pretense. The agreement regards who Jesus is before men. Don't miss this. That he's God incarnate, the anointed Messiah, the Savior of the world. Able to forgive sins and impart eternal life according to prophecy. Romans 10, 8, 1 John 4, 2 speaks about saying the same thing, confessing. That's what the word means. Notice the consequences of this confessed salvation. Him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. So the Son of Man here refers to Jesus as a title for him expressing his humanity through the incarnation. Daniel's also called Son of Man, but here the title is for Jesus, his humanity. The Son of Man will confess that individuals who will confess him on earth will also be confessed by him before the angels of God in heaven. This is the result of man's Repentance. The condemnation, notice, is the result of not agreeing 
Here's the flip side of it with who Jesus is. Fearing man more than God, he says, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. God cannot be blamed. God is not partial. There's a condition that he gives. If he gives a condition, then there must be the equal opportunity for all to meet that condition. If there's one that's left out, then that's injustice. That's partiality. God cannot be good. God cannot be holy. God cannot be just. The person who does not say Jesus is the God, man, the anointed Messiah, the Savior of the world, able to forgive sins and impart eternal life. This is the person who will be denied before the angels of God in heaven. Very straightforward. Notice in verse 10, the rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes next. It has a limit. In verse 8 and 9, it's salvation. Those who accept, those who reject. Now he deals with a very specific situation of one who is being dealt with by the Holy Spirit for salvation. The person who speaks against Jesus can be forgiven. Notice, in anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Speaking against Jesus is mere intellectual rejection of information about Jesus. Like denying his deity, his humanity, or whatever you fill in the blank. Many of us did stuff like that because of our education, our upbringing, or whatever it might have been. Nah, I don't really believe that. Nah, it isn't that. You know, just judgments I made. All this being without any real illumination by the Holy Spirit to the person regarding salvation. It's just argument, discussion, choices we're making. And as time goes by, if this person hears the gospel and is convicted, then they make the decision to repent, God will forgive them. You and I are evidence of that. But a person, on the other hand, who speaks against Jesus by the witness of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Listen to the words. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. This involves a clear and direct work of the Spirit of God illuminating the sinner. This is where you know that you know that God is telling you, You're lost, you're a sinner, you're under my wrath, I died for you, I can forgive you, I can give you eternal life. A good example is the context in the three synoptic gospels about the stern warning against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's all in relationship to accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the prince of Beelzebub, Satan. They knew. You find this in Matthew twelve thirty one thirty two, Mark three twenty nine, Luke eleven fifteen, and even John has it in chapter seven, eight, and ten. This is when that person knows that this is God's doing and attributing the works of Satan to Jesus. That Jesus is making known who he is and 
And they're speaking against the Holy Spirit. Why? Why the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is the Paracleo, the Comforter, the one who is illuminating. He is the silent representative of Jesus. He never speaks of himself. He will speak of me. Guide you. Instruct you. Convict the world of sin as we'll see. Now, there is no time period or number of times indicated here. Only that when that line is crossed, nothing can be done. That sin will not be forgiven, literally sent away or remitted. The best way to tell you you haven't done it, many people say, I think I've committed. If you think you have, you have not. Because if you've committed it, you would not be sitting here. You would not be concerned about Jesus, salvation, heaven or hell or anything else. You're giving up. Now, I don't know if I've ever met anybody like that. But um, the warning is there, so the potential has to be there. By the way, it's a sin that's not forgiven. In this age, in the age to come, Matthew twelve thirty two says. Now, this verse is interesting to me because there are many great teachers today in the church that teach that they believe this cannot be committed in this age. Well, it says in this age and the age to come. This age is the age of grace. The age to come is the millennial kingdom. When all those who do not accept the mark of the beast and the remnant of Israel go into Jerusalem and the new earth, not the new earth, but the renovated earth and the millennial, and they repopulate. And that sin will still be able to be committed there. So how anyone can teach that it's not capable now is beyond me. It definitely is. Now, in verse 11 and 12, notice, now the persecution of believers is aided by the Holy Spirit. So he goes from salvation to the warning of the Holy Spirit blasphemy, now to those who are generally born again and faithful and trusting And they find themselves in very difficult circumstances. In verse 11, the persecution of Christians is um, certain. But not all will be persecuted. Jesus is primarily speaking to Jews. Now, when they bring you to the synagogue and the magistrates and authorities. So, the elders and rabbis would castigate these Jews in the synagogues for leaving Judaism and abandoning the law. The magistrates and the authorities refer to the chief ones vested with authority to impose severe verdicts, be they Roman courts or any others that would follow in the history of the church. Fear, intimidation, and many other emotions would arise, but they were to fear God, not man. And in these situations, those, those emotions will arise. And I've got to call on the Lord. And I've got to look to the Lord. And I've got to know that He's going to be sufficient. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Daniel in the lion's den. Joseph in the house of Potiphar. Jeremiah, the only one against all the false prophets. 
Wow. Jesus gave them comforting counsel. Listen, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. They're not to worry, be anxious, troubled, or distracted about their answer or response. Again, we worry about things that may happen that will never happen too often. God will be sufficient and faithful at the time. This would equally bring fear of what man could do to them. And this is what he thought. Don't, don't, don't fear what, what they can do. They're limited in what they can do to the body. He's not saying don't fear. There's fear against man. We all experience that on different occasions. And that's why he pointed out there in verse 4 through 7. Now, notice the pertinent words will be imparted by the Spirit. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. These are believers that he's dealing with. As he's teaching about non-believers in the previous text. He's talking to them directly. The promise is given by Jesus who cannot lie. The Holy Spirit will teach the individual before the arresting authorities. As Stephen, as Paul in the book of Acts, Acts 7, Acts 19, Acts 22, and 26, and many other portions. Paul says, I wish together you were all together as I, except for these bonds, these chains. They rejected the gospel. Herod of Bernice. Hmm. The promptness is stated that very hour, the time of crisis, the time of need. The particular words, what you ought to say, the word ought means must of necessity and duty. To be what? To say the same thing about Jesus before those who are persecuting, right? To not be a weather vane. To not play the hypocrite. To not give an appearance that you're bowing to the fear of man when you really fear God. Right? Hmm. Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible. The gospel in miniature. It's so simple a child can understand it, yet it condenses the deep and marvelous truths of redemption into these few pugnant words. I've given it to you before, but it's well repeating. Listen. God... The greatest lover, so love, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, believeth the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life. The greatest possession. That's all we had. John 3.16. We need nothing else for salvation. To proclaim it. It's the gospel in miniature form. (laughs) It's right there. The gospel. Is the medium. God uses to save people as you know. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Therein lies the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith to faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, so Paul was not ashamed of it. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. You don't get evangelized by pulling a little news out of a Cracker Jack box. It's through the gospel. Sinners are saved. Do they even have those anymore? Sinners are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. As the gospel is proclaimed, God initiates. The Holy Spirit turns on the light and tries to convict us that we agree with him. The gospel is not forced on any sinner against their will. Not everybody believes this. That someone rejects the gospel of salvation does not mean God predestined or elected them to be damned, as some people believe. The doctrine of salvation is taught from the divine and human side. Both sides. Election and predestination in no way nullifies or does away human responsibility. We've just looked at it in depth in our series of Calvinism. And we just did two studies on it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5. They are complementing truths, not contradicting truths. That God elected and predestined me doesn't bother me. It thrills me. But I don't do away with my human responsibility to respond to God. They're not contradictions. They're compliments. How can you work them out? I can't. I'll find out when I get to heaven. But never exclude one at the expense of the other. You end up in heresy. God initiates always through the gospel and man believes or disbelieves the gospel as the Holy Spirit illuminates that sinner. It's a choice. If there is no choice and God predestined only the few to be saved and no matter what happens, they're going to be saved. There's nothing they can do about it. Why proclaim the gospel? Why give an invitation? Why warn sinners if they're ultimately going to be damned and can't be saved. It's an insult. The gospel's an insult then on the Calvinistic theology. And you can't just wipe it all away with the sovereignty of God. John 18, 6 says, And when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's what he does. The history of the church bears witness to the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to the persecuted saints and martyrs of the church. To give them the words before their accusers are sentencing them. We have plenty of records on those. To strengthen them in the most difficult situations, be it in jail or torture. To confess Jesus by the very last breath to those who are Killing them and praying for their salvation. Hmm. John 16, 2 says, They will put you 
out of the synagogues, Jesus speaking, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Hmm. It's becoming more a reality in America, this verse, isn't it? You can believe anything you want in America today, but not in Jesus Christ. Number one enemy is climbing the list pretty soon is Christianity in America. God is able to save anyone believing in Him. Anyone. And so Jesus warned against hypocrisy for these three reasons. God knows everything. Nothing escapes Him. God is to be feared above Everyone trusting Him. God is able to save anyone believing in Him. Lord, thank You for Your grace and love. Deal with our hearts. We thank You for Your Word and we pray You continue to just pour Your grace out upon us as we trust You and look to You, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. It might be over the internet. If you believe the gospel that I've preached this morning. That Jesus is God who became man. Died for your sins and rose from the dead. Then you can be saved. The Holy Spirit will allow you to understand that. By illumination. And it's your choice to choose. Yes or no. You have to confess. Say the same thing. Agree with God. He does not agree with you. And he will save you right where you're at. It's called repentance. If you believe what I've just said, this is your prayer to him. It's called repentance. As you ask him to forgive you and to come into your life and he will give to you eternal life. Right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.